Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. We were getting ready for a big celebration. We, we were winning everything, and all of a sudden it was just called off. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list. That, of course, was Donald Trump on election night calling for the nullification of mail-in ballots. That was part of the plot to overturn the election, and now... Text messages have surfaced from former Georgia Senator Kelly Leffler, revealing even more details of that plot. Plus, the phony Republican narrative that abortion rights is fading is an issue. Assisted by the national media, they're gaslighting women about what's at stake in the midterms. And tonight's democracy defender is taking on the powerful MAGA forces in Arizona, who want to control how votes are cast and counted as the threat of violence increases against election workers. We begin tonight with the midterm elections, now just 19 days away. But here's the thing. For many Americans, Election Day is not the only day to vote. In several states like California, Arizona and Georgia, the election has already begun. Forty six states offer early in-person voting. And when it comes to early voting in the modern era, it is Democrats as well as younger voters and black voters that tend to vote this way while older and Republican voters have traditionally relied more heavily on absentee voting, while Election Day voting has historically been more of a jump ball. That's why Republican states keep trying to mess with early voting, why they are fixated on limiting or flat-out terminating early in-person person voting on Sundays, a move aimed at black churches that conduct souls-to-the-polls events after service, and why Republican so-called voting reform has almost always left absentee balloting alone. For this election, new numbers by TargetSmart reinforce these points, showing 56% of early voters so far have been registered Democrats, and just 34% have been Republicans. That's more than in usual years. But here is where it gets weird. Voter trends got flipped in 2020 due to the pandemic, but also because of one man's desperation to stay in power, win or lose. Donald Trump did something no Republican in my lifetime has ever done. He vilified absentee voting. Now, why did he do that? Because even red states were making absentee voting more available as a safer, health-saving option during the pandemic. So both Democrats and Republicans and independents, everyone was using it. But what Trump wanted his voters to believe was that absentee voting was inherently bad. His postal director even interfered with mail delivery, seemingly to hurt absentee vote delivery. And Trump voters responded by turning against absentee voting and shifting to Election Day voting as the only legitimate form of voting. And thanks to the January 6th committee, we can now put together why Trump would do that, upending decades of successful Republican use of absentee voting. It's because of the way votes are counted. On election night, states count the same day vote. Some states have pre-counted the early vote by election night. Ah, but the absentees, those come in later. And those tallies can change the whole count. So it looks like a Republican victory on election night. Suddenly, 
is a Democratic victory days or even weeks later, as the sometimes slow, laborious, and in 2020, contentious process of vote counting continues. A narrative formed, a false one, of course, that the shift in who was winning as the absentee votes got counted meant that Trump's election night victory was stolen and a Stop the Steal movement was born. But Trump needed more than fake outrage to stay in power. He needed House and Senate members to object. Enter Kelly Leffler. Remember her? She was once the richest member of Congress, the former Georgia senator who called Black Lives Matter a Marxist organization. Almost 60 pages of text from Leffler's iPhone have now been obtained by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, revealing conversations during her final weeks in office as she fought to hold on to her seat. Now, remember, she was in a tight runoff battle against Democrat Raphael Warnock. A special election in January 2021, at the very time that Trump and his allies were working around the clock to cast doubt over the November election results. The texts reveal how, at the time, Leffler's Georgia colleagues pressured her to join Trump's crusade. Colleagues like Trump sidekick Marjorie Taylor, soon to be ex-Mrs. Green, who in early December texted to Leffler, quote, hey, I need to talk with you about a plan we're developing on how to vote on the Electoral College votes on January 6th. I need a senator, and I think this is a major help for you to win on the 5th. Marjorie would text Leffler again on December 20th, inviting her to a White House meeting that she said she organized with Trump, his legal team, and members of Congress who are going to challenge the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden in several key states on January 6th. Leffler responded, I'm with Ivanka all day Monday, but I've said everything is on the table with regard to January 6th. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports Leffler ultimately could not resist Trump's insistence that she support his plan, given threats that, the, that he would abandon her campaign. He demanded that she announce her support in exchange for Trump holding the last-minute Georgia rally that she desperately needed. Leffler would lose to Warnock on January 5th, 2021, the same day that Trump advisor Steve Bannon warned on his radio show that all hell was going to break loose the next day, January 6th. And we know what happened next. And so what happens in two weeks if Republican candidates who think they're winning on Election Day end up not winning after all, after the votes are tallied? But even the most skilled liar must sometimes face his lies, something the January 6th committee is diligently working on. The January 6th committee met today to finalize the timing of when it will issue its subpoena to Donald Trump. The subpoena is expected to drop any day now. Joining me now is Charles Coleman, civil rights attorney and MSNBC legal analyst, and Stuart Stevens, senior advisor of the Lincoln Project. Thank you both for being here. And Stuart, I do want to start with you because, I, look, I've been aware of politics pretty much my whole salient adult or sort of sentient adult life. But as, ever since I have worked in campaigns, it was always Republicans who voted absentee. It's how in 2004, it kind of looked good for John Kerry, right? When I was working down there in Florida for an outside group, watching this election come in, the early vote was strong for Kerry because black voters, young voters, people have to work every day and they can't necessarily hang out on election day. They voted strongly for Kerry. And then you had the election day vote where really Republicans usually have to catch up and see if they can overwhelm the number of early votes that, were, that Democrats have put in place. And then the absentee votes almost always meant that if those came in and it was close, they were going to win. What do you make of what looks like evidence now that Trump deliberately turned that table over, 
deliberately turned his voters against this form of voting so that he could claim that absentee votes were the steal. Well, you know, you're absolutely right, Joy. Um, when I was coming up in the Republican Party, um, it was sort of a rite of passage to work in the absentee chase program. It was like working yep. in, the, in the, you know, in the mailroom. Um, and we always prided ourselves on doing it better than anybody else. There was a whole system, three touches, you follow up. Um, it's how, you know, Connie Mack got elected Senate. Uh, you know, it took a while, like I think 48 hours before they knew who was going to win that. Yep. Um, you know, the irony of this is that what Trump did probably played a key role in one of the more astonishing days in American political history when two Democratic senators were elected uh, the same day in a runoff. And people just don't grasp how difficult that is. It's like winning the World Series with four perfect games. Um, it's a self-defeating thing. Um, and there, I can guarantee you that people inside the Republican Senatorial Committee and the Congressional Committee, they hate this. They hate that Trump did this. But it is part of this process that Republicans are engaged in, in destroying faith in our electoral system. And that's what you know, they want. Right, exactly. And the thing is, they've broken absentee balloting. But also it feels like, and Charles, let me bring you in here, because it feels like this is the seeds of the conspiracy, right? You have to break absentee. He's thinking, what can I break here, right? You want your people to vote. But you want them to vote in a, in a particular way that you can say the way that the other people voted is, is, is demonstrably fraudulent. Let me play a this is a little mashup of some of what Republicans who went to the January 5th and the January 6th, ultimately, you know, Capitol Hill events, the events in D.C. that presaged the January 6th insurrection. This is what these Republicans were saying. Take a listen. I've got a question for you. Is there any person here that actually thinks that Joe Biden won this election? We will not allow the liberals and the Democrats to steal our dream or steal our elections. Let's have trial by combat. (laughs) One more quick thing. I want to play this piece of sound. This is Steve Bannon on January 5th. Take a look. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging. And now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. If you're in the Justice Department, Charles, does it now start to come together as a, as a, as a, as a conspiracy that Trump must have been involved in? Well, I think we're getting closer. We're not all the way there entirely. But I think that in terms of the groundwork being laid and the dots being connected, there's very little left to go. I think we have seen quite enough to understand that Donald Trump was very much so, even if he wasn't the originator or the orchestrator, he certainly was someone who was truly involved in the execution of what it was that this conspiracy was intended to do, which was ultimately disrupt the certification of votes on January 6th. And that's what we're talking about with respect to the committee and ultimately the goal of what everyone sought to accomplish. And so while we don't necessarily have Trump's finger exactly on the scale or caught red handed, this is another brick in the road leading directly toward Donald Trump being a key figure, if not the key figure in terms of being involved in the overall January 6th plot to overthrow the United States government. Yeah, and we'll see what happens when the subpoena comes down and what the, what the wording of it is. But, Stuart, the, the one thing that we do know is that Donald Trump has left this strategy behind as basically a permanent strategy 
to, to vilify mm-hmm. any form of voting that is not election day. Here's Marco Rubio saying one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard anybody say in a debate, but it's part of the, it's kind of part of the new shtick. Here it is. There's danger involved in drop boxes. People need to think about it. Okay, imagine someone decides, oh, there's a drop box. I'm just going to put some explosive in it and blow it up and burn all of those ballots, and now those votes don't count at all. Okay, that, that, that's dumb. But, but, but it's part of the shtick, right? Now what you have happening, Arizona, alleged voter in, in, intimidation at drop boxes, people following people from drop boxes, intimidating them. You have a, 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 per, a, 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 a Trump allies probing for election system weaknesses in Texas and other key states. You have the Arizona Attorney General's Office, who's a Republican, asking for a federal investigation of True the Vote, which is known for following voters and intimidating them. You've now created a narrative inside the Republican Party party that all elections are suspect and anyone who votes any other way but election day is suspect. That means that we are all in danger just going to the polls. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the reality is that no one in the history of sports ever tried to change the rules of a game they were winning. Um, (laughs) There's a reason Republicans are doing this, and that is because they're trying to reduce the number of people who can vote and they self-select the number of people that can vote. And it is a critical process on the way to an autocracy to develop a legal theory that will support it. Um, If Georgia uh, changes its law so that the state legislature can overturn the popular vote, when Georgia overturns the popular vote, it's not going to be illegal. And this is, you know, it all goes back to on January 6th, this was all about race. All of the areas that they talked about having suspicious votes were Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia. Um, And it, it was just an, another effort to deny uh, African-Americans uh, a, a way to, to express themselves, to vote, to participate in American experiment. And it's, it's an ugly continuation of Jim Crow. And those that supported it were Jim Crow. But look, let's look. 57 percent, I think, of the House voted not to certify. Yeah. And I don't know any good reason. That's probably not going to be 70 percent plus next time. And Charles, you know, I'll give you the last one on this because you were, you were kind of giving a, a, ver, a nonverbal amen here. But that's the thing, right? Republicans have lost. They don't have a strategy to get black voters, young voters, voters who care about climate, you know, you know, working class, non-white voters to vote for them. They, they, the majorities of those voters are going to vote for Democrats. And, and just that's kind of gone. Right. They, they've lost that opportunity because of some of their rhetoric. So what they seem to be doing is saying the ways in which those voters vote, we'll just make those, we'll just take them off the table, then we win. Well, Joey, what you and Stuart have so eloquently and, and, and respectfully put into play, I will call playing for the viewers. Republicans have given up and abandoned their strategy on anything resembling inclusion and doubled down on the idea of codifying white nationalism. And I say that because white nationalism, it, was, it refers to the systems and involvement of, of, of politics and of other systems that are fundamental to American democracy and the belief that those systems are reserved for certain people. Those people not being people who look like me and you, Joy. And I think that what you're seeing is since they can't win, as Stuart is saying, and they're already behind and they're just leaving the notion of inclusion outside of anything that they're willing to consider or to engage. Now the strategy has to be how do we make it actually illegal, not just difficult, but literally illegal for more people to participate in these civic processes. Uh, Yeah, it's why their very favorite cable news host touts white replacement theory, which is a fundamentally racist dogma, and then whines as if he is the victim of racism and complains about people on this network uh, when he's literally pushing a white nationalist view 
on TV every night. It's quite interesting. Uh, Charles Coleman, Stuart Stevens, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, the Republican effort to gaslight women voters. You know what? You don't really care about abortion, dears. All you care about is inflation. Got to feed your hobby and the kids that we're going to make you have. Right, gals? But guess what? Reproductive rights are an economic issue. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The midterm election is now less than three weeks away. And in the final stretch, I've noticed, and I, I don't know if you've noticed, frankly, this like, gaslighting of women voters, this message that says, oh, you don't really care about your right to control your own bodies, dears. It's the economy, stupid. I mean, Republicans certainly want you to think that, and the Beltway media is helping push that narrative, with headlines touting recent polls, some with tiny, tiny sample sizes, suggesting that Republicans are surging. The red wave is back. We can go back to our pre-Dobbs narrative because the economy and inflation are the most important issues. The end. Add to that bad faith questions like this one President Biden uh, took in on Wednesday. Just hoping to clarify for midterm voters, top domestic issue, inflation or abortion. All important. Unlike you, there's no one thing. I mean, this may be news to Republicans and Fox News reporters, but women are part of the economy. Abortion is an economic issue. I mean, it's an economic issue in Texas where women nearly died of an infection because doctors couldn't perform a legal abortion. Healthcare is free in America, as you know. And if not being able to get an abortion leaves you sicker, that costs. It's an economic issue when, as the Wall Street Journal reported, a Tennessee doctor had to send a woman in a medical emergency on a six-hour ambulance ride, again, not for free, to end her pregnancy in North Carolina, where she arrived with dangerously high blood pressure and signs of kidney failure. North Carolina has become a sort of haven for patients seeking access to abortion care as neighboring states across the South have outlawed the procedure. And the Republican candidate for Senate, Ted Budd, is very clear about his vision of a post-Roe future. He has backed Senator Lindsey Graham's bill for a national abortion ban after 15 weeks. Regarding exceptions for rape and incest, Budd told the Raleigh News and Observer, quote, every life is precious, and I think let's focus on the law enforcement there. And he expanded on that this week in an interview with a North Carolina NBC station. Much rather it be, like what the Supreme Court said, that it needs to go back to the states. Uh, any exceptions for life of mother, rape? I've, I've always, look, I'm pro-life, and I have been long before politics, and I've always been about supporting life, including the life of the mother. Uh, exception for rape? I've, about the life of the mother. Well, he made that clear. Joining me now is Sherry, Be- Sherry Beasley, the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate from North Carolina. You know, and Ms. Beasley, let, let's, let's talk about that, because 
I, I do feel gaslit at this point that you've got a media narrative that says that women don't really care about abortion, that women don't really mind if the states control their bodies. They don't care about that. They just care about the price of milk. Is that what you're experiencing when you're talking to women across North Carolina? No, women care about freedom and they are deeply uh, angry and fearful about what they see on this national narrative and not just narrative, but what you just showed about Congressman Ted, but is a modified position. He's always been very clear and is leading the charge on an absolute ban for abortion without exceptions for rape, incest or risk to a mother's health. And what we know is that, yes, there are women who are traveling from Texas and Louisiana and other states to North Carolina to get an abortion. But we know that women who have experienced a sexual assault. Uh, these women will be forced to carry these pregnancies to term. Septic uterus, uh, miscarriage, the body won't release or or ectopic pregnancies. I mean, it means that women will be forced uh, to carry these these pregnancies, which is impossible because the life saving treatment uh, for a woman with these conditions is an abortion. And it means that women will die which is absolutely unacceptable. I will fight when our freedoms are on the line and I will fight to make sure that Roe versus Wade becomes the law of the land. You know, what, what's what's sort of fascinating about it, I mean, look, for instance, Florida has an abortion ban at 15 weeks with no exceptions for rape and incest. So, you're, so North Carolina is one of those states that women right now can go to. That wouldn't be true. If Republicans sweep uh, these midterms, that would mean that your Democratic governor would lose the ability to protect women and veto, right, if they increase their majorities in the state house and the state Senate Republicans, that means they could override his veto. If they get a veto-proof majority in your state house and Senate, there'd be nothing that anyone could do to stop your state legislature from passing a draconian. They could pass a six-week Mississippi-style abortion ban. New North Carolina, which is a more progressive sort of Southern state that people feel bit more, is a bit more welcoming. It's not as far, far right as some of these other states are going. It would revert. What do you make of the irony of some people being willing to allow the United States Senate to go back to the party that caused us to lose our right to our bodily autonomy, to give, let the, give it back to the Republicans, and then to let states go that way as well? You know, this is serious. I mean, the, the important thing we've got to remember is that this is a decision that a woman should make with her doctor and without the interference of politicians up in Washington. And women and families and people are fearful. I heard from a grandfather just a couple of nights ago who was concerned about his granddaughters. I mean, folks know what's at stake. And the reality is the majority of folks in North Carolina and this country support uh, the protections and the restrictions uh, as outlined in Roe versus Wade. And the reality is whether it's protecting our wallet or protecting our fundamental freedoms, I'm the only candidate in this race who has solutions for both. And you, how would you vote on Lindsey Graham's bill? Lindsey Graham said he will put forward if Republicans take back the Senate. And by the way, let's just be clear. If your opponent wins in North Carolina, he will vote for that abortion ban. How will you vote? You know, these decisions are made between women and their doctors, and there is no place in the exam room for Congressman Ted, but it is important that the protections and restrictions that are outlined in Roe versus Wade be the law of the land. And that's exactly what I would fight for. So you would vote against the 15-week national ban? Absolutely would. Roe versus Wade ought to be the law of the land. It does provide protections and restrictions. And I would ask our folks to please go to SherryBeasley.com for more information about my campaign. And the last thing I will, uh, I will ask you is, um, 
you're very close. You're already a statewide elected official in North. So people have proven that they will vote for you statewide. So what is your strategy in the close here? Because I know economic issues are also very important to people. All of these, and abortion is an economic issue. It ain't free to raise a child. Has anybody seen what the price of diapers is? They're expensive. I've raised three of them, my husband and I, and it's, they're expensive. Um, and forcing someone to have one means taking on economic risks. What is your strategy in the close of this race? Because President Obama carried North Carolina in 2008. It's possible for a Democrat to do it. There's a Democratic governor there. What is your closing strategy? You know, folks are feeling everything from pain at the pump to the cost of prescription drugs and everything in between. And Congress can address these really important issues and shouldn't run away from them. We're working hard in these last 19 days. We know that national Republicans in Congress and Bud are spending millions of dollars to distort my judicial record. Um, and they don't do that out of a sense of desperation unless they know that we can win. We're working hard for every single vote across North Carolina. We're talking with folks about the things they care about. And I'm fully committed to standing for what's right, calling out what's wrong, and leading courageously in the Senate for North Carolinians. And I will always put us first. North Carolina is a beautiful state. It's a wonderful state. And it's also a state that I feel like is is giving like a sane version of like the, the, a kinder, gentler South. And it would be it would be sad to see it become more like Florida. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, Sherry Beasley, thank you very much. Best of luck. And another reminder that early voting did begin today. It began today in North Carolina. So please get out there and vote. Make sure you're registered. Make sure you vote, y'all. It's very, very important. For more information on voting in your state, scan the QR code that you see on your screen right now or go to NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. And this programming note, the battle over women's reproductive rights is the focus of Shouting Down Midnight from executive producer Trevor Noah. The film shines a light on former Texas State Senator Wendy Davis, who stood up against her state's 2013 restrictive abortion bill. Shouting Down Midnight airs on Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on this very station on MSNBC. And up next on The Readout, this week's Democracy Defender. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. If you want to know why we keep stressing how democracy is on the ballot in this election, look no further than the state of Arizona, specifically Maricopa County, ground zero for election denial. You may remember that in 2021, Maricopa was home to the cyber ninjas fraud it of the presidential election. You know, the one that lasted more than five months and cost nearly six million dollars just to discover that Joe Biden really did win the state. Well, sadly, it didn't end there. In fact, it may have actually gotten worse. With the midterms just weeks away, not only have the Justice Department and the FBI identified Arizona as one of the top states for threats to election officials and poll workers, 
the Arizona Secretary of State's office is now asking the DOJ to investigate potential voter intimidation after a group of people approached and followed a voter in Maricopa County who was just dropping off a ballot at a drop box. And it doesn't seem like an isolated incident. Multiple reports also show that groups of these self-appointed election police are sitting outside Maricopa County's election headquarters, guarding drop boxes, photographing voters who are dropping off their ballots, and some are harassing election workers. The harassers claim to be with Clean Elections USA, an organization inspired by the laughable, widely debunked documentary 2,000 Mules by Trump-pardoned former felon and right-wing conspiracy theorist Dinesh D'Souza, which alleges, with zero proof, that widespread ballot harvesting occurred during the 2020 election, which it did not. Joining me now is tonight's democracy defender, Julie Gunnigal. Julie Gunnigal, the Democratic nominee for Maricopa County, who, if elected, will be responsible for overseeing the Maricopa County Election Board tasked with certifying future elections. And I want to start by making sure I pronounced your name correctly. Is it Gunnigal? It is. Oh, I feel so good about myself. Well, th- tell me, OK, let, let's start with this um, It's frightening. It would be sort of comical if it weren't so terrifying. Are we what what, what it sounds like is happening is that these self-appointed vigilantes um, are showing up and and doing what right wing, you know, evangelical um, um, protesters used to do outside abortion clinics. Is that is it that bad? And you got it exactly right. Not only is it that bad, it's some of the exact same players. We're talking about extremists in Arizona. And to really understand the problem, we need to recognize that it wasn't just the fraud. It wasn't just that Arizona attempted to send fake electors to uh, to reelect President Trump, even though he wasn't duly elected in our state. We had people storm our recorder's office in 2020. And the problem has not really ended there. It's only been made worse. And so is and Arizona is an open carry state, right? For guns. That's exactly right. So what, this is what scares me. The idea that people, maybe armed people, could be trying to intimidate voters at the polls. What's being done or what can be done to protect election workers who are critical to our democracy and to protect voters? Sure. I mean, everything that can legally be done is being done right now in the state from the Secretary Hobbs um, uh, complaint asking the DOJ to come in and investigate to the FBI's very warranted concerns on attacks on election workers. What isn't being done is that candidates who embrace extremism aren't telling their supporters to knock it off. We're literally seeing only people who are being emboldened, whose conspiracy theories and lies are being mimicked by their candidates. And frankly, that's terrifying and unacceptable. Tell me what your job would be. Explain it to people, because I think this is the thing. The down ballot races, people usually don't understand what the job is. And so sometimes people skip it. Explain what the job is that you're running for and why it's important that people vote on that ballot item. With pleasure. So I am running for Maricopa County Attorney's Office. In other areas, this would be called your DA or your prosecutor's office. And it fulfills two key roles. First, this would be the office that would be enforcing Arizona's abortion ban, um, something I have vowed not to do, not now, not ever. We shouldn't be involving police and prosecutors in those decisions. Mm. But also, this has a, a robust civil division that defends our Board of Supervisors and our county election program, meaning that your Maricopa County Attorney's Office, the third largest prosecutor's office in the country, is going to be one of the most pivotal figures when it comes to certifying 
following this election and the 2024 presidential election for Arizona. You know, I'm so glad that you explained both of those two things, because here's the thing. People will complain about the, the justice system, the criminal justice system, and, and not think, maybe I ought to choose who the prosecutors are. Do you know if your opponent is committed to enforcing the abortion ban and prosecuting women and doctors over abortion? Yeah, I mean, she's flip-flopped so many times, like so many uh, GOP hopefuls on that side of the ballot. But yeah, she said that she would enforce our 1864 abortion ban. When, when was it passed? I'm sorry, what? When was your, when was your abortion ban passed? It was 1864, back when Arizona placed the age of consent at 10 years old and allowed husbands to freely sexually assault their wives and partners. Um, that's the ban that places a mandatory minimum of two years in prison and a max of five for anyone who procures an abortion in Arizona. It has no exemptions for rape or incest, and it has placed all of our providers in absolute fear and terror. And to make matters worse, it's being proposed to be enforced by my opponent, who is Rachel Mitchell. You'll remember her. She was the prosecutor from the Kavanaugh hearings that ran cover for powerful men like Brett Kavanaugh and is going to be the person potentially enforcing these laws against Arizona women and pregnant people. This is why we're doing the Democracy Defenders. You guys got to vote on these ballot measures. You have to vote down ticket for these offices. These are the people who will be enforcing these laws now that the Supreme Court has said your state can own you. Um, and this is the lady with a very memorable name, so you can't forget it. Julie Gunnigal, our Democracy Defender today. Thank you. Thank you. Best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Woo, Lord. Coming up next on The Readout, 10 years old. Ooh, 14-year-old Jalen Hall joins me to discuss his powerful portrayal of Emmett Till in the new movie Till, which details Mamie Till Mobley's bravery in pursuit of justice for the brutal lynching of her only son. Stay with us. They have a different set of rules for Negroes down there. Are you listening? Yes. You have to be extra careful with white people. You can't risk looking at them the wrong way. I know. Bo, be small down there. Like this? That was the warning Mamie Till Mobley gave her son Emmett, or Bobo, as his family called him, just before he boarded a train to Mississippi to visit his cousins. He would never come home alive. While true to life, that was actually a scene from the new movie Till by young director Shinoya Chuku. The movie portrays in gut-wrenching detail Mrs. Till's journey from excruciating pain and anguish to steely determination in her quest for justice for her only child. Her son, Emmett, who was just a 14-year-old boy, was abducted, tortured, and lynched in Mississippi after being accused of making advances at a white woman. Carolyn Bryant Donham. The two white men accused of this barbaric crime, Roy Bryant, Carolyn's husband, and his half-brother J.W. Milam, both World War II veterans, were acquitted by an all-white jury. A year later, they proudly admitted to murdering Emmett Till for money from Look Magazine, saying they did it because they wanted black people to stay in their place. Carolyn Bryant, who during the trial accused Emmett of grabbing her, later admitted to lying about what happened that day. Earlier this summer, a grand jury in Mississippi declined to indict Bryant, who was still alive, even though there was an unserved arrest warrant for her role in Till's abduction. 
It was Mamie Till Mobley's decision to publish the excruciating images of her son's battered, disfigured body and her decision to hold an open casket funeral attended by thousands that helped galvanize the Montgomery bus boycotts and the civil rights movement. The date of his death was deliberately used in 1963 as the date of the March on Washington. And to this day, not a single person has been held accountable for Emmett Till's murder. In the new film, viewers are spared the gruesome violence because the director did not want to make a movie about black trauma. But what we do see is the story of a mom who loved her outgoing, carefree boy. The task of bringing Till to life was left to 14-year-old actor Jalen Hall, who had only learned of Emmett's story when he was 12 or 13. And Jalen Hall joins me now. I said it only learned of it when you were 12 or 13. You're only 15 now. So you're still, to me, you're still a little kid. Yeah. Um, hey, Jalen, how <laughs> hey, are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, uh, my eyes might be a little ga- glassy, a little red right now. Because it just, it brings me to tears even thinking about this, you know, and, and yeah. where, where we've come. And I'm, I'm just so excited to be a part of it. <laughs> I, listen, I have to tell you, it, I, I had a hard time reading through that script. I'm just keeping it real yeah, because yeah. I, it, there's something about Emmett Till's story that, that just does make me cry because it was the way you portrayed it really is what brought it home. He was so joyful and you portrayed him as such a fun, happy boy. He reminded me of my kids, you know? Yes. Um, how did you approach doing a story that is so tragic? What was your approach to it? And what did you know about Emmett Till going into your audition? Yeah, so um, as far as information-wise, like, uh, I didn't know everything. I didn't know in such detail, you know. I, I really only knew um, the tragic event that happened to him. And that was kind of told to me as a, you know, uh, cautionary tale, a means to prevent something like that from ever happening to me. Uh, My mom was the one who shared the story with me. Uh, But even she didn't know in great detail uh, about the series of events like we do now with going through the production. So when embodying a human being like this, there is, of course, the research that you do uh, to try to gain those traits and those aspects and understand the time period. So the dialect and things of that nature. But it's also like conveying a a authentic, accurate 14 year old boy, a joyful boy, you know, a curious boy. And and that was kind of my approach on it to really fall into that, you know, uh, that, yeah. that sort of dynamic. Cause I was 14 when we filmed this. So yeah. yeah. That had to be hard though, right? I mean, because we live in an era where this is happening to children, right? Yeah. I mean, it is happening to boys and girls. And, you know, Trayvon Martin traumatized my, it tra- it traumatized my yeah. kids because they were his age at that time. Was it hard for you to get through playing this role when, for real, for real, he's your age? Yes. Well, I wouldn't say uh, it, it was hard for me. I looked at one of the, uh, I looked at this as one of the things that needed to be done, that, that had to be done to the best of my ability. Um, and, and, and as efficient and accurate, as authentic as possible, so that the world could really connect with him on, on a different level. Um, and of course, there's that kind of first, like, first instance of pressure, um, with giving a voice to a historical figure who never really had his own, at least for our world to see today. Um, yeah. but after that kind of set in and I had that little realization, I, I embraced you know, the responsibility, the honor uh, with with open arms. And I'm, I'm just so blessed and thankful to be able to have done that. 
And you did such a good job. Um, you, you're, the, the lady who played your mom, Danielle Deadweiler, was brilliant yes. in it as well. She was yes. so good. Your chemistry with her was so perfect. Um, and look, you're out here working with Whoopi Goldberg, who was the yeah, executive yeah. producer of this film, <laughs> um, who originally had thought about playing Mamie Till Mobley at one point. I mean, you're working at a high level, young man. Thank you. Um, <laughs> give us a little bit of where you came from, your background. Is this your first? Because this is your first big thing. You're about yes. to be a star. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, this is my first big uh, movie, uh, you know, at least in the, you know, theaters and stuff like that. Yeah, this is this is really big. Uh, I started out in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I'm from. Um, and then uh, I moved out to L.A., which really started my career. You know, uh, I made my ways there. Um you know, starting with All American, which is now on its on its fifth season, yeah, um, and yeah, just just continuously going uh, on my journey and you know, climbing and stuff. So I, I'm really appreciative, and I'm mo- most really appreciative of my mom. You know, yeah. who was there with me throughout everything. Who is really the main reason that I'm here? Because without that support, without that push that she gave me, um, and and that nurturing of my dream then I wouldn't have been here today. So, yeah. Okay, you're going to make me cry now because now you done reference mom, you, you love your mama, <laughs> you played basically a perfect sort of mom-son, mama's little man, yeah, little, yeah. Her, her beautiful boy, and you did such a good job. It was hard Thank for me you. to watch it, but Thank you made it easier because you were so good in it. Jalen <laughs> Hall, we're going to see a lot of you. Thank you for being here. Thank I'm you. I'm going to have to call you nephew now because I yes, really thought you were Yes, please do. Please okay, do. Okay, nephew, have a good night. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right. All right, Till is being shown in theaters right now in limited release and debuts nationwide on Friday, October 28th. It's brilliant. Uh, You won't be sorry. We'll be right back. The United Kingdom will get yet another prime minister, their third in three months, after current PM Liz Truss threw in the towel today. Her stay was brief, very brief. Let me run through the highlight reel of some of her most significant accomplishments. She was the final prime minister during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, the first to resign under her son, King Charles, who literally only met with her just a couple of weeks ago. And she is the shortest serving prime minister in UK history, lasting just 45 days in office. So basically four scaramuchis. Truss was forced to resign after she proposed the UK's biggest tax cuts in 50 years, which included tax cuts for the wealthiest, tax cuts for large corporations, and corporate regulation rollbacks. Well, that sounds a lot like current Republican policies, but you don't have to take my word for it. Here's Trump's guy, Larry Kudlow, saying the exact same thing. The U.S. midterm elections cavalry arrived early in London. What do I mean by that? Well, the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss has laid out a terrific supply-side economic growth plan, which looks a lot like the basic thrust of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America plan. Liz Truss is basically operating a Ray Thatcher-Trump economic policy. Ruh-ro. Now, I should point out that the markets did not agree with my good friend, Mr. Kudlow. In fact, they freaked. Her proposals triggered a major sell-off in government bonds that was so extreme that the Bank of England had to step in. I mean, the markets were so spooked that the International Monetary Fund issued an unprecedented rebuke of the proposed tax cuts. Folks, it was bad, like, like real bad. And based on Mr. Kudlow's logic, we can look forward to the same thing here in the good old USA. You know, 
since the trust plan is the basic thrust of Kevin McCarthy's plan. Yay, I guess. Well, here's one major distinction between our country and theirs. The Conservative Party of the United Kingdom had zero qualms defenestrating their party leader, none. And boy, did they move fast to give her the old heave-ho. Meanwhile, back on the U.S. farm, our modern Conservative Party is still terrified of their defeated leader. Hey, when Trump incited an attack on the Capitol, Kevin McCarthy literally flew down to Florida and gave the guy a big old hug. Just a tale of two conservative parties with very di- different and diverging visions of accountability. It's weird, right? And that is tonight's readout. And be sure to join us tomorrow night on the readout. Donovan Capehart will bring us his exclusive sit-down interview with President Biden, where they'll discuss student debt, the midterms, the state of American democracy, and much more. You don't want to miss it. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.